Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. Evercast is the first real-time collaboration platform built for creatives by creatives. With video conferencing and HD live streaming in one web-based platform. Stay tuned for a special offer later in the show. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today we're talking with Tariq Anwar, ACE, about working with director Regina King on her film One Night in Miami, based on the stage play of the same name. Tariq was born in New Delhi, India, and grew up in London. At the beginning of his career in the early 1970s, he worked as an editor at the BBC. His feature film work includes American Beauty, for which he was nominated for an Oscar for editing and for an Ace Eddie. He also cut The King's Speech, which was similarly nominated for an Oscar, a BAFTA, and an Ace Eddie for Best Editing. Anwar's other films include The Madness of King George, The Lady in the Van, Revolutionary Road, Law Abiding Citizen, and The Good Shepherd. If you're intrigued to learn more about Tariq after this interview, Tariq published an autobiography which discusses his years in the movie-making business called Movers and Shakers, The Monster Makers, available on Amazon. Tell me a little bit about getting this project and how you got connected with this one. Well, you know, just a very conventional way. Um, I didn't know Regina, didn't know her at all. I mean, I knew her as an actress, but not much more than that. And she didn't know me. So, I mean, I was interviewed, I guess, I imagine, I never inquired, but I imagine there are other editors who interviewed as well. Mm-hmm. But we seemed to hit it off and then she you know, asked me to cut the film. So, I mean, that's going back to November 2019, I think. So then we had you know, subsequent calls. I was in London at the time, so it was an interview over Zoom or something similar to Zoom. Mm-hmm. So then once the production started, I came over to the States. We shot in New Orleans, mostly. Yeah. And did you edit in New Orleans to begin with? Yep. We were in Photochem. They have a facility there, which was really great. So we were there for the duration of the shoot. And at that point, we were quite untroubled by COVID. So we just about managed to finish the filming almost. There were two scenes not shot, and they were remounted later on in L.A., you know, some months later. We were very fortunate in that we got away with it. And in fact, most of the editing, we managed to work together, uh, not remotely. It was only in the, the latter stages, after the director's cut, into the producer's cut and so on, that we were all just working remotely. You know, interesting, in no time were the producers and the director in the same room with me uh, in front of the Avid, which was kind of wonderful. Mm. (laughs) it's always nice i mean the remote aspect of covid has really been beneficial i mean i think yeah it's been interesting how much it's changed our industry and the way people are working because of it yeah yeah so when did you leave new orleans and move the edit to la six to seven weeks we were in new orleans so we finished in late february and moved the cutting room to santa fe because regina was acting in a film in santa fe or was going to anyway Mm. But that was when COVID became a problem and someone on her unit got the virus and so they had to shut it down. So then Regina was in quarantine for two weeks. So that disrupted the director's couple. By that point, she was pretty much happy with the edit. So then I came back to Santa Monica and they put an avid rig in my bedroom. Regina stayed in Santa Fe, not sure whether the production would start up again. And my assistant... Naomi Villaramo, she stayed in Santa Fe as well. So we had a cutting room there and one here in Santa Monica. But from that point on, it was all done remotely. 
I mean, I'd carried on working here in Santa Monica and doing some of Regina's notes. But at that point, we were actually ready to show the producers. So then it was kind of open to the producers to give notes. And then I worked remotely and then posted the cut for people to review and so on over the next how many weeks it was. I guess by the end of March, about seven weeks into the director's cut, we were posting for the producers. Mm-hmm. And then all the other aspects like music, sound effects, VFX spotting was all done on Zoom calls and submissions from the various departments. The music department would send submissions in and sound effects and so on. And VFX from that point on is all remote. So Naomi, my assistant, stayed in Santa Fe pretty much for the duration of all of that and only returned to LA when we were well into the sound preparation and VFX. Very interesting. Was this movie based on a book? It was based on a play by Kent Powers, which is going back to the early 2012, because I'd seen the play in London in 2013. So I was familiar with the play, but there was no book. No, it was just um, an original play by Kent. Hmm. I think some of it, of course, was an elaboration of an evening they did, in fact, spend together, the four of them. It's interesting that you did the Malcolm X. So, so you must have known quite a lot about Malcolm X, having done the documentary <laughs> on him. He must be on authority. No, he was a fairly small part of it, but there was a clip in there about him talking about, we must gain, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he kept repeating, like many African-American preacher, religious figures, there's a repetition to it. We must do this by any means necessary. We must gain social justice by any means necessary. And so it was also a lot of Martin Luther King. There were also a lot of Chicago political figures, all the basics, but it's also about how that movement has come into today, that it's the Mm. modern day Mm. people Mm. and the many political figures that have come to prominence, you know, obviously Kamala Harris being uh, nominated as the vice president. And there's a lot of mayors that have continued that civil rights into today. So but it was a quick little process. And I think we're actually going to get a bunch more work out of it because they really liked what we did. And they think we might do a, like a history of black music in the United States. Uh, special well, that would be on that. great. Oh, oh yeah. Uh. I can't, can't <laughs> wait for that. If that yeah. happens, I will love that. So I wonder whether you were one of the few uh, editors that got to see the play as early as you did. You'd seen it years before you were asked to be a part of this project. Yeah. I mean, it's just fortuitous in a way. Because you know how difficult it is with interviews anyway with a new director. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's helpful to have seen the play beforehand. So she knew I was interested in the subject. But I mean, I didn't read the script in any way like a, a worthy film to be working on. I, mean, mm-hmm. I didn't really think of it in those terms. It just seemed really interesting in terms of the dramatic conflict, you know, in terms of both physical with the boxing and also the verbal conflict. It was kind of interesting. And the dialogue was just riveting. So I, I really thought it'd be an interesting project, set aside the political aspects of what the film was saying. Right. With some of the movies that have been adapted from theater, you know, I'm thinking of some of August Wilson's plays. The dialogue is very specific and almost theatrical in a way. This felt very real to me. It didn't feel like it had a theater background. Did you get any kind of direction on pacing or rhythm or how the lines were delivered? Not really. I mean, Regina is the kind of director most editors would love to have. Mm. And that she wasn't specific about anything at all. Our earlier conversations were about the staginess, obviously, because it's the play. She said that she would try and make it a bit more filmic. So she was very conscious of that. And there must have been these conversations in pre-production between Kemp and Regina. And the fact that he's added new scenes. I mean, the opening, the two fights and 
also the scene, the wonderful scene with Brown and Carton, that was all added. And then taking the dialogue out of the room, up onto the roof, and then the flashback to the Boston ballroom. All those things were added to make it a bit more cinematic. So I mean, all these things were done beforehand. But in terms of editing, not really. I mean, she just let me get on with it, which is what most editors would like. Mm-hmm. You know, she shot it interestingly. I mean, she gave me a lot of material, which was really, you know, as you know, is really helpful. I was always able to vary the shot sizes and to go to different angles. I had plenty of reactions. There was so much coverage, not just in the boxing, obviously with several multi-cameras, but also in the dialogue sequences, there were multi-cameras. So there's always something interesting to go to. And if there was a difficult cut to make from close to wide, it was always covered in some way. So I didn't have any kind of continuity issues to deal with, which you would have with single cameras. Mm-hmm. So it, from that aspect, it wasn't a difficult edit for me. Mm. And bear in mind also, she tried to put as much movement as she could into those scenes, either by staging, by getting the actors to move around, or by um, moving the camera, you know, whenever she was able to move it within that confined space. Yeah, a lot of it takes place in a hotel room. Hotel room, yeah. Yeah. We've got a scene that we can show people and that we could discuss, which is the PR people called it the pretty scene, <laughs> where Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, looks at himself in the mirror and goes, why am I so pretty? Pretty, pretty, yeah. That's a great scene, and it has a lot to do with some of the things you just mentioned, which was a wide variety of choices of angles. You barely repeated a setup in that scene, from what I could tell. Yeah, I think all editors are mindful of not repeating things, you know, to try and avoid it if you can. But you're so dependent on the material that you've been given. Mm-hmm. So I was able to do all those things and select when to come out wide when I felt it was necessary and when not to cut. You know, that's the other thing is the danger with these dialogue sequences to make it too cutty. Constant cutting is, I personally find, irritating. Relentless editing I hate. And so be able to kind of have those moments where you can intercut between the characters and then put a break in and just hold without having any idiots in there. And I was just able to do that with the material that I was given. You know, the moments where I wanted to stay out wide and just let it hold mm-hmm. without being intrusive by editing. So I was able to do all those things, you know, without too much difficulty. But again, it was really down to the material as it always is. Mm-hmm. And I also got a sense through the editing of that scene in the hotel room of the geography as you pointed out she's keeping things moving with the staging of the blocking of the characters moving pretty constantly when they could all just be sitting in one location you know like somebody could be sitting on a bed and a chair and you're done but no there's quite a bit of a choreography in there talk to me about trying to maintain the geography so the audience doesn't get lost in where people are i don't know it's it's a question of feel that you have you just feel that you need to come out wide to show the geography and of course in dramatic terms it's sometimes really important to do that i mean a case in point is the the very long scene after they come down from the roof and there's a very heated argument between sam cook and malcolm and it leads to that wonderful moment when malcolm's referring to cassia says his passion comes from a pure place and to which clay responds passion is a strong word and this is such a big moment and this, this moment was marked by a pause and reactions in the playing as shot by Regina on set. Again, it's a case of the material again. She gave me such a lot of material to enable me to extend that moment longer than they actually played because it was such a big moment in the scene. The pauses really dramatically helped that scene. But the wide shot 
I don't know if you call it, there's, there's a wide shot, reverse wide shot, looking back at Sam Cooke and Malcolm uh, when Sam walks away. And instinctively, you don't kind of approach it in a kind of intellectual way. Mm -hmm. Just instinctively, I felt you needed to come to the wide shot as Sam pulls away from Malcolm because it shows Malcolm's isolation at that moment. Whereas Clay's made the declaration, that, you know, passion is a strong word. And to create Sam Cook moving away from Malcolm, leaving him alone, isolated in this wide shot at the other end of the room and the three of them congregating at the other end seemed really quite powerful. So that's a case where, you know, you just feel it's right. And then you, if you want to post-rationalize, you say, yeah, it's, it's isolating Malcolm at this moment by coming out wide and you can see a small figure at the other end of the room. So those things... It's hard to explain why you do that, but you just feel it's right. Mm -hmm. It's it's funny. You only have to rationalize it when somebody asks you, like you're doing now, <laughs> as to why why did you do? Well, that? I don't want you to rationalize it, but I did wanted to see whether there was a feeling of what your take on it was. And getting back to that pretty scene, that was another one where there were a bunch of close ups, and the scene kind of ends with Malcolm X not isolated, but you stay kind of wide on him. There's a series of little wide mediums, and I'm just interested in why you chose to do that what the value of that camera size was on his couple of lines. I don't know if you can remember that exact moment in the scene. Again, you know, it's not very satisfactory to say it's just a question of feel. Yeah. You know, you go tight reactions, tight reactions, then you just need to pull away. Yeah. And, you know, it's just a sense that you have that you feel that's the right thing to do. And, of course, you know, you you could be wrong. I mean, mm -hmm. it could be a wrong move to make. Then it's down to the director to say, look, you know, this isn't quite right. This is not what I intended. And can yeah. you do it in a different way? But fortunately for me, Regina and I were pretty much felt the same way about the scene. So there wasn't a great deal intruding on the internal cutting of scenes by and large. I mean, she was really quite happy. I mean, occasionally she would swap out taste because she thought there was something better line reading or better reaction from somebody else. And then we'd investigate and then change things around but with her there's always a discussion and she would say you know i think this is better do you think it's better on if not then tell me why and we we talked the usual things editors do yeah she's really great she wasn't at all defensive you know if i disagreed with her it was a very great environment to work in i mean some directors do some don't yeah it's just one of those things yeah and sometimes, right, those wider shots are to set up a closer shot on somebody else or a closer moment on that same person at a more important time. You can't be close all the time, right? You've got to choose yeah. those moments. It's a powerful tool. Yeah. It's a strange thing when you look at the dailies. That you kind of sense what the director is looking for in Regina's case, the way that she shot the scene. I mean... For instance, in the Carlton scene, you know, one of my favourite scenes in the film, near the beginning when Bran goes to see Carlton. And there's a moment when Carlton says to Brown, uh, Jimmy, you can always reach out to me. And there's a huge kind of relaxation on the part of Brown when he hears that. It gives you a sense that he's now relaxing. He's not on guard anymore. He's put his guard down mm -hmm. when he says that line. And there's so much coverage in that scene, all singles, two shots, and then from the interior looking out and the two shots looking out of the window. So there's plenty of coverage there, but there's only one shot that actually registered this being getting his guard down is the over-shoulder wide shot of the two of them on Brown, where he sits back in his chair and crosses his legs, which is such a small gesture, but it's something if you pick up and you realise wow, he's okay now. He's with this white guy, but he's going to be his friend and everything's going to be fine. And of course, it turns at the end quite dramatically. But when I looked at all the material, I knew that 
Regina wanted me to be on that shot for that moment. You just something you sense that she shot it for that precise moment. So there are other little clues when you look at the dailies and you can sense what the director is looking for and then you put it into the assembly. Yeah, that's so much. What I'm getting is that idea that so many people talk about of letting the film speak to you, right? You see that shot from that angle and there's something about it that lets you know how it needs to be cut. Yeah, you just know that you have to be on that shot at that moment. Mm -hmm. And so then it kind of affects the shots around it that you know you have to be closer in prior to that and then come out with that moment and then you can go back in closer after that. But that moment is so important because it sets up what happens later on. It makes his humiliation even bigger, you know, having relaxed first and then, oh, you can't come in here. So you don't think about it. You consciously think about it. You just look for clues in the way it's shot. You say, oh, yeah, I guess the director wants to use this here and I better be tight here because this is what she's looking for. Or, for instance, again in the garden scene, the shot through the window looking out into the garden from interior is a lovely shot, but you don't want to be on that shot for important bits of dialogue. So you have to choose your moments to use it. Whereas what they're saying isn't that important, so you can use that shot there. But again, those are things you do. I think most editors work out for themselves. Mm -hmm. That idea reminds me of something I've talked to a couple of people about, which is the importance of playing a line, a dialogue line on an actor. Do you feel like playing a line off someone speaking, the audience loses a little bit of the understanding of what's being said in other words that for an important line of dialogue it must be spoken on yeah again i think that most editors can visualize a scene as they read it when you're reading it you kind of visually you can you can see the performance you can see the staging in your head and then it's kind of confirmed when you look at the daily so you kind of think oh yeah i get it so your head's always kind of working out how you're going to put the scene together because you see it in your head so instinctively i think you know the lines which need to be on the speaker and which lines need reactions. It's just a natural sense that you get. So, I mean, that's something I think innate in editors. I mean, you know, again, it's not something you can articulate. You just, it's just common sense in a way. You just, mm-hmm. Because I think you're influenced by everything that you see. I mean, all the films that you see, you're kind of influenced by them you know, subconsciously. Mm-hmm. And you know how things should be staged and how you shape a scene. I think those things should be there inside any editor, I think. When you approach those scenes, you've talked a little bit about reading the scenes. Do you try to just read the scene you're about to cut? Do you read forward and back a little bit? Do you not read the scene at all when you're about to cut? I rarely refer back to the script when I start editing. I would know what the scene's about and having read the script, I know what sort of direction it's going to go. I rarely refer back to the script unless there's a line which I don't understand. You know, if it's mumbled or mm-hmm. garbled, yeah, I have trouble understanding it. Then I, of course, refer to the script to see what was actually said. I do sometimes, once I've cut a scene, I am always conscious of kind of missing a moment unknowingly. I then read the script again once I've cut the scene just to make sure that I haven't missed a beat. Because that has happened to me in the past when I've cut a scene and then presented it to the director as a cut scene. And they say, oh, no, you missed the moment. And then I feel like an idiot. Oh, Christ, of course. I missed that totally. And if I'd read the script, I'd have seen that it's probably marked in there. This moment should be uh, noted. So I do sometimes go back and reread the script. And what about your approach beyond the script? Are you a select reel person? Do you just watch the dailies in order that they're shot? Tell me a little bit about that. I'm... God, I am not very good about making notes. I mean, I just can't stand the drudgery of making notes about each take and then making it this line is good here and 
the stone is good there and the stake and so on. I just hate that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably a failing on my part that I hate the drudgery in a way of assembly. So the sooner I can get a scene put together, the more comfortable I feel. And particularly when nowadays, I mean, more so than way back when in film, mm-hmm. there is just such a wealth of material. It's because the digital age has allowed directors just to shoot so much. And it always it just falls on the editor to actually go through all this material and make selections and choices. And sometimes, you know, when you're faced with a bin, which is just, or several bins on one scene, it's just kind of mind-blowing sometimes and can lead to sort of a paralysis of editing, which, you know, I understand. And my approach is, is a much more simpler one, is that I think starting the scene on the right shot is so important and has a knock-on effect on all the shots that mm. follow. So that shot choice is also influenced by how you ended the previous scene. So, and then, of course, once you have a series of scenes edited, then, of course, you start changing things because you might decide to finish a scene on a different shot. And then it has ramifications on the shot on the incoming scene. I don't like wasting time trawling through a multitude of takes prior to assembly. I prefer to stage the scene, first of all, in terms of shot selection. And then when I feel that the shape is right, I review all the other takes and swap them out in the assembly as necessary. And of course, the assembly changes slightly in this process. But for me, it's a far more efficient way to edit and reduce, as I say, this possible paralysis of facing huge bins. For me, that works the best way. Because in a way, if you just look through every take and make choices, when you actually come to cut the scene, you've spent age looking for the best take on this line reading on camera. But then when you've actually edited it, you're not on that person anyway. So I think it's kind of a waste of time doing that. You just you shape the scene and then know where you're going to be if he's speaking, if there's a reaction, and then go back and then drop in the best parts from the other takes. So it's finding the right take to get into the scene and then staying with that until you feel staying like with that. now it's yeah. time. I mean, to... I, I do generally pick one of the selected takes from the director to do that. And I look at the select her, she, he or she selected takes and pick one I think is by and large the best one. And stick with that on each shot size and then just build the scene around that and then go back and then review with other takes to see if there's a better performance. Yeah, that makes sense. But obviously, as you said, the previous scene can influence the scene you're cutting. And when you're shooting out of order, then you don't have that previous scene sometimes, which is a little tricky. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Tariq Anwar. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by Evercast. It's hard to beat the ease of sitting shoulder to shoulder with a director, cutting together in real time. The Evercast platform gives you that in-person experience no matter where you are. You can securely stream your Avid, Premiere, or any other NLE in 1080p with ultra-low latency. Plus, you can video chat, record, draw on the screen, and even make time-stamped notes. No more uploading or downloading of files. No more installing special hardware or sending notes back and forth. Evercast now offers flexible plans to make it accessible to more creatives. And in the month of February, Art of the Cut listeners can save $50 off their first subscription by heading to evercast.us slash AOTC. That's evercast.us slash AOTC. And now back to my conversation with Tariq Anwar. Let's move on to the director's cut and how the movie changes as you get away from that editor's cut. Well, this film was slightly different. I mean, in, on most films I've worked on, there you find they're f- far more overlong than was the case with The One Night in Miami. 
So there's a, it's a timing issue with a lot of the films. They just wait you know, half an hour, 45 minutes too long. So you have bigger issues than I had with this film. I mean, time wasn't an issue. I can't remember what the original assembly was. Probably 10 minutes longer, maybe wow. 12, 13 minutes. Ten min so that's, that is nice. Almost yeah. everybody I talk to, you're easily 20% over. Yeah. You're 30 minutes over. Yep. So there wasn't that problem. And again, with a lot of films, you find yourself transposing scenes because it's so kind of malleable films. When, you, when you're editing, you can move that there and that. They move things around. There was far less of that in this film. We did shorten some scenes, mainly because they were just playing too long. The Copa Club at the beginning, where we're introducing each of the characters, that we just stayed in the Copa Club too long when we really wanted to move on to the brown sequence. So th there were some scenes which we were re reduced down, but not to a huge extent. The biggest problem, Mary, was actually when Malcolm X goes to the car park and leaves the rest of them talking. That, and then Malcolm makes a phone call to, goes to get the camera, then he makes a phone call to Betty. And then while he's out there, he spots the FBI watching him. Then Cook comes out to find him. Well, that whole section with what Malcolm was doing in the car park and what the guys were doing back in the hotel room was just way too long. Mm -hmm. And in timeline terms, didn't really play very well when you read it it seemed fine but actually once you faced with the film as edited there was something really unbalanced about that whole section he was away in the car park far too long because there was so much going on back in the hotel room because remember there's the banter with the boys and then the bodyguard comes in asks for an autograph it's quite a long section and then there's the whole business with brown in front of the mirror he's talking about his career as a, going into films it just felt didn't feel right and there was another scene which isn't in the film, which was within this section where Sam Cooke comes out of the hotel and just stands and has a smoke and the bodyguard is now outside and the bodyguard has a conversation with him saying how much he's been an admirer of his and how do you write songs? What's the inspiration for you writing songs? So there's all that was just played way too long and you think, well, what the hell is Malcolm? Why was Malcolm's away all this time? What's going on in the car park? So all that needed to be compressed in some way, which involved losing the scene with the bodyguard and Cook, but also cutting down the banter between the boys and the section with the mirror that had to be reduced down just to give it a better balance and that better comprehension of the timeline between what was happening on both sides. So that was really, the, in terms of scenes or problems within scenes, that was the biggest problem area that I can recall. And as you mentioned, it, it wasn't really for time. Like many people, I'm sure had that experience where like we just have to get the length down but what you're talking about is not getting the length down but just a feeling that something feeling, a session yeah. is too long yeah unbalanced but maybe it's because of being a play maybe that's it i mean what else i've done other plays Madness of king george was from a play and i mean, such a long time ago i can't remember but i doubt if we played around too much with that either yeah that makes sense one of the things that i've talked to a couple of people about who've edited film is do you feel like there was a change in your editing style from when you cut film to when you started going on nonlinear editing systems? I don't think so. I mean, there is a change in editing style, but I don't think it's because of going to digital. Mm -hmm. It's just because editing styles have changed so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just so much more cutty now. Editing, it's just so much more internal editing of scenes. Whereas if you look back, in the past, you just stayed on people much longer in within scenes. You stayed on a wide shot much longer. You stayed on singles much longer. Now there's just this almost constant editing. And of course, I'm influenced probably by that. I probably cut 
more now than I did many years ago when I'm cutting a dialogue scene because I'm just conscious of this need of pace to keep the energy up the whole time. You know, I don't know whether audiences are more impatient now because they've been subjected to so much more picture cutting. I mean, if you look at any of the National Geographic programmes, there's this cutting, cutting, cutting the whole time. Mm. And other outlets, there's this relentless need to cut, 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 which I just, I hate. Mm. You cut fast at, you know, when it's appropriate, but not all the time. It's just, oof. Like you said, the relentlessness of it. It's not that the pace shouldn't go up and down. It's that it's constant. Constant and kind of, in a way, arbitrary. It seems to be just cutting just for the sake of keeping the energy levels up and cutting without really much thought and thought and rhythm. There's no kind of change in rhythm, which I think is so important, you know, as we were discussing earlier. It's great to have a ex- hostile exchange between two people. Then at some point, you've got to let the air out a little bit. Mm-hmm dramatic effect and then pick it up again but you need to change the uh, the energy levels dynamics yeah and, and i agree that it is not necessarily attributable to being an nle specifically it's just that styles change do you think it's yeah. because of the amount of footage like you were mentioning how many angles you had here which gives you more opportunity to cut yeah far more has been put on editors actually in the digital age I mean, not just a question of the huge amount of material we have to sift through. It's the other things like the VFX now. We're expected to do so much of the VFX ourselves. So, I mean, in many ways, I'm very dependent on my assistant because, you know, I do enjoy it, but I'm not particularly good at it. So I do rely on my assistant helping out and manipulating the image. I mean, not VFX, but sometimes manipulating the image and grading the image, you know, putting movement into the... I mean, in fact, there is a case in Miami when Malcolm X is on the phone to his wife, Betty... There was a lovely camera movement which Regina had, you know, tracking around during the phone call. Uh, and then we were on Betty, and then we come back to Malcolm. And there wasn't enough movement in some of the shots. They were very static. So then we added similar movement, manipulated the image so that it was sort of kind of flowed from Malcolm to Betty. There's this constant moving, shifting movement. But of course, it's too limiting in average. You can just sort of track left to right. I couldn't do that kind of parallax movement, which you could on set when the camera tracks but also moves around, mm. comes in. I couldn't achieve that. So that was done in VFX. But those things, the editors are now kind of, in a way, you're expected to be able to come up with those things. There's much more demands, I think, on editors than there used to be. It's good in a way, because if you like to have control, which I do, which I'm sure most editors would like to have, because you do have that facility to actually control things much more. Mm. But, you know, I don't think people are aware that our role is become more difficult and more challenging and how much more is asked of us and in terms of sound i think that's a personal thing sound i mean i just love you know i just love working with sound effects and music while i'm assembling i think you're aware of that so again that's so important to me we have you know, editors have control of that aspect of it i never believed in a picture editor doing the picture cutting then handing it over to someone else to design the sound i think that's kind of nonsense everything has to happen with the picture editor in your room with the director or without the director but you're creating it all you're doing your own bit of writing with the sound and you know with the music to a certain extent with the temp music which again i think is so important for me you know music and sound and picture all come together they're not sort of separate entities and temp music you know helps with the picture cutting kind of informs the picture cutting if you pick the right piece of music and it really works it kind of helps guide you through the picture edit and even though it's the case with this film as well I mean I just love the idea of just having a solo piano track and Regina wasn't 
And actually, one of the discussions we did have when she interviewed me, she did ask, I think, something along the lines of, how do you like to work? And I did say, well, look, I like to work with temp music. So would you be totally thrown if I, when I submitted scenes to you, I had music on there? And she, she was very, very reluctant. I mean, she said, oh, really? You know, it's kind of, oh, do you really have to? I mean, it was one of those. She said to me, she looked, when I watch films, I find music can be really intrusive and it's too manipulative. I'm really not sure I want to go there early on in the edit. I did persuade her. So let me just try a few things. And if you hate it, I'll stop. Um, she said, no, no, okay, okay. So she let me. And the first sequence I cut was the prayer sequence. And I thought, oh, this is obviously going to have music on it. There's no other way. I did toy with the idea of putting gospel piano, which I thought might be going too far for her. You know, being Islamic faith and having gospel music, it might be too much of a, throw her too much. So I then I thought, oh, to be safe, I'll just put some flute on there, Armenian flute, which is mm. what I did. And thankfully, she it really appealed to her. So that gave me the confidence to keep on doing it. And I think she felt a bit more comfortable that maybe she should be more open to the idea of having music. So then I used the gospel piano, the piece I was going to put in the prayer. I used it for the introduction of Malcolm X from Brown. So Brown is standing there after he's been insulted. And we just hold on that shot. And I thought, God, this again, this make a wonderful transition to have gospel piano just coming in at the end of that. And then coming into the scene with Malcolm X on television, making a speech. Great introduction. So I, I tried that, and again, she was okay. And then with Clay, him bouncing on the bed, I thought picked another piece of blues piano, which had a bit more liveliness to it, more energetic, more mischievous and playful. And so I tried to vary the different pieces of blues piano all the way through, and you know, she was okay. So, I mean, the, again, the blues piano, the playful Clay bouncing on the bed piano. When I put the music there, of course, I changed the picture cuts to fit in with the playful music. And it just helped. Whereas if I hadn't got music, I would have cut it in a different way and then left it to the composer to put whatever he wanted. But I think it's much better to do it the way that, you know, I do it. So it sounds like you didn't temp with a lot of actual movie music or were you temping with... No, no. I, in fact, I just downloaded some slow blues piano from YouTube, 10, 15 pieces. I just auditioned all of those. And the only time where I actually tried to use score was when Malcolm X sees the FBI guys. I just tried to put something a little bit more sinister, more threatening, just kind of a sustain, nothing big, but just something different from just single piano. And then Terence, the composer afterwards, Terence Blanchard, then very well, I think, brought in the Armenian flute again with his score. He did something similar, but then brought in the flute within that section, which I thought was really effective. And then I think he tried it again later on in the film as well. When they're on the roof, there's a sense of the flute. And we've got that roof clip too, a little bit of that. You're looking at fireworks. That's probably another one similar to the garden one where you're talking about you want to be able to see the fireworks, but that's from behind them. So you have to choose your moments of right when to be on faces and when to give that sense of what they're looking at. Yep. But I wasn't really mindful of doing that. I wasn't consciously thinking, you know, I have to come around to the other side just to see, you know, the fireworks in the distance. I just felt that I was just cutting for the, the dramatic moments within the scene without being too conscious of where I'd end up in terms of background. And remember, the fireworks were added, of course, later on, you know, VFX. In fact, there was nothing there at all. The VFX guys did a really fantastic job to bring that to life. Speaking about the VFX, for me to understand a little bit of what you were talking about, the Malcolm on the telephone scene are you saying that you maybe put a little bit of a pan on it but then the, in vfx yep. they actually made it look like parallax yeah yes that's right so they had to key out 
the background and re-put the background yep. so that they can manipulate it. Well, they obviously they enlarged the frames to, to give them the material to do it. Mm-hmm. It was actually felt as though you, it was a production shot. You know, mm-hmm. the camera was tracking and then tracking around the character, and it just made it more kind of seamless. It kind of gives you kind of an unsettling feel, as well as a kind of a romantic thing between the two of them bring them together but at the same time there's something unsettling about it which is then kind of resolves in a way by seeing the FBI agents at the end of that scene you know that something's going to happen here I mean it's not a huge dramatic moment because I mean it isn't that kind of film but it's just a little sort of sense of danger that that's all when you talked to Regina did she tell you how she likes to work <laughs> hey no I don't <laughs> think she did uh I don't know it was just a very easy transition i think to working together i mean it just seemed kind of effortless there wasn't any if you read that there's a chapter in my in the book i wrote mm-hmm. i don't remember it i do with I f gary book. gray i mean that was quite the opposite i mean he was just <laughs> horrendous i mean you can mention his name i mean he said to me i hadn't met him i was hired i don't know how, why i was hired because i'm not really that kind of editor for that kind of movie but i was hired and i probably was forced on him he probably didn't want me and when I joined the production, we hadn't had a talk at all. I was hired by the producers. And so the first time I met him was when he came to the cutting room after the shoot. And the first thing he said to me, he declared, he made a declaration. This is the way I want to work. And he said, what I want you to do is to do what you're doing. You're putting scenes together. And then I want to look at these scenes again, but not just with you and me but with anybody who happens to be around, like my assistants or anyone who's walking outside, they just draw them as an audience. And he said, we're going to comment on your edit and we're going to give you notes. He said, that's the way I like to work. He said, I also like to come in late and I expect you to work till midnight. That's my process. So, I mean, those kind of, I mean, what do you do with someone like that? Yeah. And you said Regina's notes were not specific, more like what I would think a director would give to an actor, maybe allowing you some parameters. Tell me how she talked to you about what you were doing or to prepare you. Well, following the press sequence, there's an exchange between um, Markham X and Clay. They just they stand before he exits the room. Because Malcolm X questions him about his bad behavior and, you know, why do you want to upset people? Why do you want to be make yourself an enemy? I think that kind of conversation is happening. And interestingly, that was one of the early sequences I cut. And there are basically only three shots. There's a single on both of them. And then there was a, a wide two shot in profile of them. From my recall, that was one of the occasions where she said to me, she felt I'd cut it too much. Mm. She felt I was going between the singles too much. And it just felt a little bit too cutty for her. So she wanted to come back to the wide shot twos in profile and just let much of the scene play out like that. I didn't really agree with her. I mean, I thought it worked fine, but she did want me to change that. But those were the kind of discussions we would have, whether she felt the scene was there's too much edits or... I I don't think we even had those kind of... There are very few scenes. She actually questioned the, the decisions that I'd made. I mean, it was just... It wasn't really like that. And she wasn't the boxing really didn't interest her. Not surprisingly, I suppose she wasn't that interested in the boxing. She showed less interest in the boxing in the two fights than she did in the course of the dialogue sequences. And she kind of relinquished control of the boxing to Lana Stovall, who was a boxing consultant. Oh, and it's so interesting, you know, I haven't cut 
fights before. And of course, it was a fight that's on record. And of course, from my point of view, there's always a temptation to make a completely different fight because the material was so good. You know, I thought I'd throw in about half a dozen more punches <laughs> and reactions from the crowd just to make it more exciting. But of course, I didn't get away with that. And Regina said, you know, I think you've strayed away from the original fight. And Stovall confirmed it. So I had to kind of be, I was reined back on the boxing quite a bit. <laughs> but That's pretty funny. In terms of other things, no, I mean, uh, she was concerned sometimes that scenes were playing too long and she would question whether there were possible text cuts to be made within scenes. Mm. Those kind of things we talked about. Sure. Music, I mean, we did talk about music, although, you know, she was by and large okay with what I put in, but she did want to experiment not so much with the idea of having piano, but uh, having a different style of piano. Like she was very keen on Aretha Franklin. And so she wanted that kind of style of piano, which she then passed on to um, Terence Blanchard, the composer. And also bear in mind, it was a really difficult process for her because at no time was she with Terence at any time. She was never in a recording studio with him never able to sit with him while he auditioned sketches that he'd done. It was all done remotely. And it's, it's really quite a difficult process for her. She did it really well. And, you know, with such good grace the whole time, everything. That's awesome. Final question, because I've kept you quite a while. You talked about the multicam. Do you deal with multicam in a specific way or does your assistant set it up in a certain way? Do you use it as multicam and switch between camera angles or? I do. I'm very dependent on my assistant for things like that. I mean, she sets it all up for me. And again, I kind of treat multicam as separate shots, although I have them up on screen as three or four shots mm -hmm. on the monitor. But I do sort of treat them as separate shots. So I go to the size and size of shot and the angle and then insert it as a single shot. I mean, I think multi-camera is wonderful because once I've assembled the sequence, it's great to be able to just go to another angle on that multi-camera and see, oh, wow, that actually works much better or, or whatever. But I do tend to treat them as separate shots. And in the bin, do you do the same thing where when it's set up by your assistant, they are separate shots? Or are you looking at a multi-cam clip and individuals or how is it set up in the bin? As separate shots. Got it. Yeah, once once on the record side, then I can see them grouped together. But I do have them separate. Another question about just, do you remember what your first nonlinear show was, switching from film to nonlinear? It was a TV show in the UK, and that was on Lightworks, because Lightworks was, I think, the first out in the UK. Yeah, more prevalent. And I was with Lightworks for a long time, for about 10 years or so, and only forced into using Avid on American Beauty, because the outgoing editor had started on Avid. So, of course, I inherited the Avid. So that was a really difficult change for me. And then I kind of gone between Avid and Lightworks up until the last about eight years ago, when perhaps less than that, six years ago, when it became really difficult to get Lightworks. I mean, it's impossible to get one here. Yeah. Because Thelma's got them all, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd have to rent from Thelma. <laughs> That's very funny. No, yeah, I can see that. So what was the TV show? It's called Harnessing Peacocks, which is a very small, small thing. You know, you have this hostage. Did you work on film? I did not. I started on uh, one-inch videotape. I was a videotape oh, guy. Oh, wow. Wow. That was difficult, wasn't it? You know, you get used to it. Yeah. But I never cut on film, sadly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it was a good discipline, I think, cutting on film, because you know how unforgiving film edits mm -hmm. are. The, picture, the actual physical edit is difficult and it shows mm -hmm. up. If you run it on a, certainly on a projector, but certainly on a flat plate, it really kind of bumps. So 
it's kind of embarrassing in those days when you made many miscuts that the director was aware of your several attempts to, to put the scene together. It did kind of make you think, I must get the first edit right. And, you know, I cut on reversal stock back in the early BBC mm -hmm. days mm -hmm. uh, when you're cutting items for news transmission. So the film would come in on news reversal stock and you had to be so careful because you know, what you were cutting was going to be transmitted. That yeah. was it. Yeah. So your decisions had to be right and you had to keep the film clean and keep the dirt off it no scratches so yeah maybe those things were good because you tried to make the right decision first time well yeah, and cutting one inch was similar in that it was such a pain to put up the tape the big reel of tape and you're like okay i don't want to have to go back in the machine room take that yeah. down put up the yeah. right reel oh and i yeah. made a mistake oh now i gotta redo the whole thing so yeah. in ways they're similar but i'm certainly yeah. grateful for nonlinear editing myself yeah me too yeah, yeah totally all right Tariq, it was wonderful to talk to you thank you so much for uh, chatting with us about the film that's it for out of the cut this week thanks for listening also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Tariq Anwar, ACE. Also, thanks to Jake Gum, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend. <laughs>